Aloha, everybody. Not quite right. Who knows how to say it right? Islanders. Uh, nice to be here uh, with you all. It's cold. I just get that out of the way. Uh, but I do appreciate the sunshine. Um, and uh, my, uh, my church sends their uh, greetings, as is always the case uh, when Sony and I travel. Um, they have uh, been uh, praying for you and, and uh, sending their uh, blessing along and are very grateful uh, for everything uh, that you're doing here. And uh, <clears throat> we have uh, this, uh, this sort of island tradition that when... You, uh, when you meet somebody, you're getting to know somebody. Um, it, it, it's a bit of a process, you know. You don't, don't just say aloha, but you have to share a little bit. Uh, the, the phrase in Hawaiian pidgin English is that you talk story. I don't know exactly what the, what the, the UK equivalent would be in, in, in the mainland in the States. You might say, well, you, you shoot the breeze or you chew the fat or something. Like, everybody has a phrase like that, right? But you talk story. You literally have to exchange some stories. So it's my custom uh, that when we travel and we go to conferences with uh, the new crowd that uh, I talk story a little bit. I share some stories from my community uh, to your communities. And then we feel like we know each other and we start getting along. Um, so here are some recent stories uh, from our church in Hawaii. The church is called Blue Water Mission. Um, one, because we're surrounded by uh, Blue Water uh, being on an island, and because the name speaks of kind of being out far from land, not in the green coastal water, but in the deep blue water, to be out far and in deep with God, that's generally uh, the idea. Um, we, uh, uh, Sony and I lead, uh, you know, the small group uh, in our church among our other duties, and we have a, a young man in the group, uh, his name is, is Butler, and he's super intentional uh, in, in the way he pursues things. So he just decided that he's gonna become a better healer. He's gonna work in the ministry of healing. So what he's been doing is he's just been going out into public places and trying to find sick or injured people and heal them. And he's, he's very strategic. He has worked this out. And he has discovered that when he's carrying his baby, um, <laughs> then people find him less threatening. That's really good, right? Uh, and so uh, he was out uh, in the park, our big park in Honolulu, Kapilani Park, and um, he had, uh, he's carrying his baby, he's got another uh, young kid who's in a stroller, and so he's just kind of out there looking for, looking for sick people. And uh, there was this, uh, a couple of young women, and one of them was on crutches with the big, uh, they don't use casts anymore, but these sort of fiberglass uh, braces that you see on legs. And so obviously this young woman is, is hurt. So he walks up to them and says, hey, this is crazy, but can I pray uh, to heal your leg? Uh, it's what my family likes to do on Saturdays. <laughs> and it turns out that these young ladies were Ukrainian. And one of them spoke some English and the other one didn't. The, the injured one did not. But through translation, uh, the, the woman says, yeah, yeah, I like that. They were just, you know, visiting the island. They're like, ah, I guess this is what you do in America. And, uh, and so he prayed for them. And he's very cut and dry. It's like, in the name of Jesus, leg be healed. Did it work? <laughs> She's like, that's it? He's like, yeah, yeah, check it out. 
And uh, so she stood on it, and she put down her crutches, and then she removed it. Completely healed. Right out of the box. And then he was like, aloha, have a nice vacation. Good holiday. He's very uh, jazzed up about this. So the next time he's going to go to a department store, he goes to a Target. Do you have Targets here? No, but you get the idea. It's like the big, the big all-purpose department store chain. Uh, and so he's lurking in Target, again, carrying his baby, going from aisle to aisle. And said, God, I'd really like to have a God encounter here. Um, we'd had a really good small group the night before, I think. And he's, he's very jazzed up. And uh, comes around... Uh, the corner and sees a woman, um, I believe she has a brace on her arm. Am I getting this right, honey? And walks up to her and says, hey, you know, this is crazy, but can I pray to heal your arm? I see that you're injured. And she says, well, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I don't really believe in that stuff. I'm a, a long time ago, I used to go to church, give some a 10-second spiritual biography. And then so he prays and said, try it out. And she says, oh, it's different. Let me pray again. Uh, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Now try it out. So her arm is great. And she's like, that's amazing. And then she, she just unloads on him. And she says, well, you know, the reason actually I kind of turned my back on God and I've been out of church is because I was raped. Just goes there in the aisle in the Target. And, uh, you know, that just makes it really hard in life, you know. And they're a very frank conversation with him there um, in the women's section. And uh, I said, well, can I pray for that, he says, because, of course, now he's going. And so lays a hand on her shoulder and said, well, God, there are all sorts of injuries that we have in life. You know, would you just come and heal, uh, heal my new friend? And she says, what's happening? And the spirit just falls on her. She says, I feel something coming up. And out of all of she had actually been kind of injured in the process and the traumatized in her, you know, female parts. And she says, something's coming out of me. She just gets delivered there in the aisle of Target. Uh, and so um, now, you know, they have this sort of ongoing conversation and relationship. Uh, so that's that story. That's Butler. Um, we have... Uh... <laughs> yeah, he's a good kid. I like him a lot. He's really good. He's going gangbusters. Um, we do a lot of uh, anti-human trafficking ministry in our church, sort of the justice ministry stuff. And we have these community homes in which Christians are just sort of, they live together in a big house and then they just have all these empty rooms that will take people off the street. We have uh, in our, we uh, help spring women and girls from sex trafficking in the islands. It's quite prevalent in the islands, unfortunately. And so when they get out, getting them out is the easy part, but then where are they going to go and how are they going to get healed up and stuff? That's actually the hard part. And so we have these homes and uh, the woman that leads that ministry for us is named uh, Veronica. Everybody calls her Vern. And uh, so she got this woman out and took her to one of our community homes is run by this guy named John, John and Elton. And uh, <laughs> that's actually their names. Notice I said it that way and not the other. <laughs> and, uh, 
And so and they're having their small group that night. And, and uh, the woman who's just gotten out of the trade, uh, she's too nervous to go to a proper Bible study. So she goes upstairs and retreats into this room where she's sleeping. And then uh, it comes time for the prayer ministry portion of the small group, you know. So they talk her in coming downstairs. And she gets in the circle and, uh, and they start praying for her. And then, uh, you know, we have a listening church, sort of a prophetic church. So everybody just quite innocently uh, starts prophesying to the new girl, you know, because she's sitting there. You always want to prophesy to the newbies. That's our rule. <laughs> and, uh, and so they just start going off, not knowing why she's in the house, because there's always somebody new in that house. And, uh, and then afterwards, she doesn't say a word, just sort of wide-eyed, and she runs back upstairs, never says a word, comes back down later after most people have left and talked to John and Vern and Elton and said, how did those people know everything about me? How did they know? I said, oh, well, that's the Holy Spirit. That's God uh, because he knows all about you, you know. And if you talk to Veronica, the, the woman who leads our human trafficking ministry, she would say that you can't really <clears throat> talk to many of these women and girls about God, right? You can't really talk to them about Jesus, but if they have an encounter with Jesus, then it can begin. Because you have a lot of defenses, you have a lot of injury to get around. Uh, anyway, so that's the small group at our community house, K2. That's my talk story. I'll get on to the teaching. Uh, do you feel like we know each other better now? Because I feel like we're getting along quite well, actually. This has gone far better than I expected. Um, I want to talk today about building a culture of try uh, in your churches. Um, I don't know how it's been for you, uh, but my church, Blue Water Mission, just had a devastating time during the COVID shutdowns. We were just completely devastated by it. Um, uh, Hawaii um, was quite shut down. Everything closed down. It was very rigid. Um, our government really took a lot of control and shut down the islands. And you can imagine what that does to a place whose economy is based on tourism. Devastating. Uh, we lost about, uh, doing the math now as the smoke is cleared, about 70% of our church. That's a tough place to make a living, tough place to live. A lot of people went back to the mainland and we had all the, you know, the political and the racial strife as well. It was just a devastating time. Um, we weren't really a big church beforehand. It's a very itinerant place, uh, Honolulu. Um, a lot of people come and a lot of people go because the economy is so challenging. Uh, very tough place for young families and stuff like that. So uh, over the years, uh, we've determined that we lose about 50% of our congregation every year. And then we have to replace them and you sort of would grow by bits. Uh, so we have a lot of people involved, but the, the church is never very large in terms of attendance. We never really have gotten much over 500. And after, after the, well, we spent, you know, some years at it, 14 years to get that. And, um, and then after the shutdowns, we were uh, under 200. And so we feel a little bit like we're replanting again. Um, and... Um, uh, so when I talk about the culture of, of try, um, I do it 
knowing that a lot of us are in that place where we are trying again. Um, and uh, I talked uh, a couple years ago remotely about the life of try. Did you guys watch that? Because you can see it online. I checked it out recently. I'm good. I'm really good. <laughs> really good. Uh, so this is kind of part two uh, to that talk, not the life of try, which is not to say how you become a trier, but how you build a culture of try. Uh, because I think that the number one job of any church leader is to build a culture of try. And I will unpack that a little bit. I want to do a quick review, and then I'm going to talk just some very practical tips about how to build that in your uh, churches or your small groups and stuff like that. Uh, because, as uh, we were reminded by Charles, uh, an old John Wimberism, faith is spelled wrong. Faith is spelled T-R-Y. We're going to talk about that. And by the end of today, you're going to have this down. Seriously, people. Update. Update. I've traveled halfway around the world. We're going to get this right. Uh, yeah, so I had this dream last, uh, yesterday. Uh, Sony and I arrived about 10 a.m. My transit was 28 hours. Uh, and so they let us into our hotel room early, very lovely, and I took a three-hour nap. And during that three-hour nap, I had a dream. And in the dream, uh, I was out in the lobby of the hotel where we're staying. It's 10 minutes away here. And um, uh, there's a crowd of of, uh, you know, people from the UK, I didn't know. And I was talking to them about what we should do at the conference. So pretty literal dream, right? And we tried some, uh, uh, some uh, jokes and some themes in the dream. And then somebody brought out some kitchen appliances in the dream. Said, well, let's test these. Oh, how British people roll. <laughs> Only we did not test them in a conventional way. Somebody gave me a, a, a blender, a mixer. What do you call them here? Like blender? And so I took it and I set it on the table, and then I knocked it off the table to see if it would break. <laughs> that's, that's how we tested the appliances. And then I woke up from that dream. Actually, my wife woke me up. And uh, here's, here's what I understood for I want I want to be insanely practical with you uh, in the time that, that we're together. Not just to discuss tools and tips that work, right? But to discuss things that will last, right? Because when you take something out to, into the field, when you really try to put it into practice when you're out there doing ministry, you, you need to know more about it than does it go whir when you plug it in. Right? You need to know, is it really going to last for me? Is it really going to work in the real world? Uh, and so I just want to share that uh, so that you understand the spirit in which we're moving. The thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is this, this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Is, have you heard of it? It was kind of a, a thesis statement from Jesus when he showed up in the world. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he started his public ministry. Nobody had heard that phrase before. And um, it was sort of the phrase on which the vineyard movement was built, right? Um, and um, the 
that word kingdom, uh, today it sounds like a political word, but what it really is is a, it's a word about control. Dominion might be a more literal translation of the Greek term that they used. I like the word order. The kingdom of heaven on earth, the order of heaven on earth, and this is how I like to think about it. In heaven, are there any sick people? No, that would be terribly out of order, right? So those of us who carry the kingdom of heaven on earth, the order of heaven on earth, when we encounter sick people, we restore order, right? We bring order to that chaos, and that is our privilege when we manifest the order of heaven on earth. And in heaven, are there any demonized people? No, of course, that would be terribly out of order in heaven. So those of us who manifest the order of heaven on earth, we cause the demons to flee. In heaven, is there any injustice, depravity? Do people do without? Is there poverty in heaven? No, that would be ridiculously out of order in heaven. So those of us who manifest the order of heaven on earth, we bring provision, we bring uh, justice wherever we go. Again, even if we have to do it supernaturally and miraculously, as Jesus did with the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. In heaven, does anybody not know the character and love of God? No, of course not. That would be out of order in heaven. So those of us who spread the order of heaven on earth uh, demonstrate the love and character of God and put people into living relationship with the supernatural presence of God in the here and now. That's what the order of heaven is. And what we need to know, and I think what vineyard people understand so incredibly well, is that God partners with us to get things done in the world, that we are the bringers of heavenly order to the earth. And that's really what Jesus modeled. I always thought that if God wanted to evangelize the earth, the best way for him to do it would be to appear in the sky and say, yo, here I am, deal with it. (laughs) And that would work particularly well. But he tried that in Eden, where he walked with humanity, uh, obviously, and it actually didn't go all that well, um, did it? Because we believed he existed, but we did not trust in his character. We did not trust that he was good for us. We believed, but we did not trust, and that is a very important distinction. Um, And so God inverted things. He made it harder for us to believe in his existence, and he made us trust first. Now we have to trust in him just to believe that he's there, and we have the Bible to tell us that whole dramatic story. But we know that, right? We know in in the vineyard that the kingdom of heaven is a partnership. We don't expect God to show up in the sky. That would be cool, but rather we know that we are to go and preach, right? To restore order in the ways that we've mentioned, to heal and to deliver, Uh, and to provide, to bring justice, we do that, right? I think think probably at the end of the session, I would like to try to heal some people. So let me just ask you now, if you get healed today, who has healed you? Me or God? Wrong, me. (laughs) Me. Where does the power come from? But who's the healer? because God partners with us to get things done, right? Who's teaching today, me or God? Sadly, me. (laughs) Where does the truth, where does the wisdom, where does that power come from? God, you get it, right? So we are the ministers, right? Who are the ministers of the church? All right, we know that one. 
So in that sense, to walk in faith, to walk in the kingdom of God with faith means trying. You try things. Faith isn't what you believe. Faith is what you do with what you believe, right? Faith means trying. Uh, faith might mean risk, but to take a risk, you have to try something first. So there. <laughs> or as I like to say, faith is when belief tries what it should. Faith is when belief tries what it should. One of our big sayings at at Blue Water, and Jesus was all about this. This is the kind of faith that he modeled, right? He did not show up and say to the crowds, hey, agree with me. Never said that. In fact, very rarely answered a question directly, right? What would he say? Follow me. Come on, let's do some stuff together, right? Do what I do, right? In, in the vineyard, we say it's an all play, Right, that to live the kingdom life means that you try kingdom stuff. We've all probably learned that now. Uh, to spread the kingdom in the world means to spread kingdom trying. Right, it's an action movie. Uh, and so we try to gather people into the kingdom by making triers of them, uh, essentially. Um, um, Jesus ends his most famous teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with a point on this. He's talking about the wise and foolish builders, and we all know this parable by heart, I'm sure. He says that uh, there's this foolish guy who built his house on sand, right? He sets it up by saying, those who hear these commands of mine and do not put them into practice. It's like some fool who builds a house on sand, and as soon as there's pressure, it's going to fall apart. Those who hear these commands of mine, take them and put them into practice. Well, that's like a guy who builds on rock. That house is going to stand um, forever. going to be fruitful. He tells us that the difference between a wise person and a fool is simply in the trying. Right? Because they both knew the commands. They both had the knowledge. Only one of them put them into practice. So there's the believing part and there's the trying part. And what I want to talk about today, what I often talk about is, is the difference, right? There's a difference between being a believer and being a trier uh, in, in life. Uh, trying is the thing that crosses the gap between inaction and action. I love it when Charles was talking about diligence, you know, the, the antidote to sloth is diligence. I wonder if you could say the antidote to sloth is try. I hope you can, because I'm thinking my people can't spell diligence. <laughs> so I'm just like, maybe I substitute, might work out. Um, but trying is that little thing that moves you from inaction to action. And that is the thing that we want to get better at than anything else in life. That's the thing that you want to spread. That takes a lot of faith, that defines faith, uh, in, in my opinion. Trying is the first part of all doing. Trying uses different muscles than believing does, right? The demons believe all the right things, but they don't trust in it, right? They don't act on it the same way uh, that, that we do. We don't want to be foolish. We want to be wise and we want to not just make believers, we want to make triers. We don't want to build communities of belief. Really, we want to 
create communities of trying. And I'll say this too for all the evangelists in the crowd. The world does not care what you believe, but the world is starving for faith. There is a difference. Very often when we try to spread faith, what we do is we try to spread our beliefs. No, you know, spread your confidence, spread your spirit, spread your your try, your power, right? Show faith. And then the world becomes quite interested in what you believe, why you have the faith that you do. But that's a different sermon. Um, where there's a, a problem in your kingdom life, it's likely that you cannot solve it with better believing. But it's quite likely you can solve it with better trying. Right? Um, you can't just believe harder. And doing things that help you believe harder, they, they can be helpful, but they don't go the full distance, right? You can't just worship a little better, pray a little better, study a little better. Somewhere along the line, you just have to try something, right? And that's harder than just uh, believing uh, better. Um, so... Uh, I think a lot about the difference between believers and triers. I, I try to make believers, but I try to turn them into triers. Sometimes I try to make believers by getting people to try first. Have you ever done this? You know, uh, we had a young woman who came to our church recently. She showed up at Christmas Eve service. I think that was her first time somebody invited her to celebrate Christmas with us. And she came out of sort of a a, a, a spiritual but worldly background, you know, yoga and stuff like that. So a spiritual person, but not, uh, not a Christian. And um, so the first evening she was there, uh, one of our uh, ministers uh, called her out of the crowd and gave her a prophecy. Well, that was interesting to her. So she came back. And the first Sunday she was there, uh, we were praying for sick people on our ministry team after the service. And one of our prayer ministers grabbed her, grabbed her and said, you come heal this lady. And so she did. First out of the, first time up to the plate, baseball analogy. Uh, I don't know what it is in cricket. <laughs> you know, this non-Christian gal heals somebody. Well, now she's in, right? Now she's like, okay, tell me about this. And she eventually approached me, had a conversation like, this has changed my life. I love this place. I love Jesus. Can I talk to you so that you can help me understand what it is I have to believe? <laughs> That's a good conversation, actually. You get people trying, and then eventually they figure out what to believe. Didn't Jesus do that a lot? Follow me. Come on. Let's do something together, you know? Uh, and very rarely did he explain what to believe, and he didn't make it easy when he did. Right, kind of focused on uh, the trying part. Anyway, so there's the life of try. Uh, I talked about this last time. How do you become a better trier in your own life? And we went over some tips like, um, you know, about how to be a great trier. You know, number one, you gotta know how to fail, right? That's uh, one of the first lessons that Jesus taught his disciples when he sent them out without him sent them out um, like in Mark 6 or Matthew 10, Luke 10. He said, go preach the kingdom. 
Uh, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cause the blind to see. Freely receive, freely give. You don't get to take any money with you. Don't get to take any extra clothes. When you go to a village, find somebody to stay with for a while. And if they do not accept you, leave immediately and shake the dust off your feet as you go. That was a lesson in how to fail, right? In other words, don't get stuck in failure. If it doesn't work, move on. Such a practical tip. And it just always impresses me that Jesus would give his disciples that instruction uh, right out of the block. You gotta know how to fail, right? Because failure is not the problem. You know what the problem is? Failure to try is the problem. And I think uh, I love, I love the, the parable of the talents because I think it illustrates that so well. You know, the problem was that the guy didn't try. He didn't do anything with his talent. Um, so you got to know how to fail. Uh, you have to have a certain attitude. Trying has an attitude. I think faith is an attitude. It's basically an approach. You know, faith isn't a set of beliefs. It's the approach with which you live approach of confidence, it's whether you take risks, it's whether you try, and the beliefs on which that rests, for sure. But faith is an attitude, and you wanna drip with attitude. The attitude of try, I talked about before, is, is something like contempt for failure. Just pff, doesn't even count, you know? So that's a great attitude to cultivate. Uh, trying is always in the midst of other stuff. There's never the right time. There's never enough time, right? Trying happens in the midst of everything else all the time. There are tons of Jesus teachings about delay, you know, never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Um, today has enough evil of its own, uh, Scripture tells us, right, to work now. Uh, the weapons of Chaos are vagueness, delay, and distraction. We talked about that a little bit. You know, delay is such a big thing in our life. You know, Satan never tells you not to do it. Satan only ever says, eh, do it tomorrow. That works, right? You never, never quit. You just don't quite follow through. And you could spend your whole life in that space, a space of sloth, Charles talked about that so well, I think. Try as a routine, you know. You will accomplish in life whatever you do routinely. Period. You know, virtues are nothing but a good habit for you Aristotelian philosophers. Um, Anyway, those were some tips on the life of tribe. So I want to move on from that today and talk about building a culture of tribe because this is a conference for leaders. How do you build a culture of tribe? We'll spend the next 20 minutes on that. Um, in, in your church or your, uh, your small group. And I just want to make clear uh, that culture is the best coach that you have going for you. And I said earlier that I think the number one job of any leader in a church is to build a culture of try. You want a place, you want a space, you want a time, you want a culture in which trying is the norm. That's the most important thing for you to do. And I think Jesus had a whole culture of try around him. I think when you got into his entourage, you were just caught up in it. And that's what culture does for you. Culture comes at you from all directions. Culture is, is 
not just rules. It's more like norms. It's about shared expectations. It's popular sayings. It's style, you know? And the culture of try has a style to it. I love it when people walk into Blue Water and they just know it's an active place, right? There are no bystanders. Uh, and people get caught up into things before they even understand them. They find themselves trying kingdom things before they even know what to believe yet. Culture. That's what I mean when I mean culture. And that's a, a great goal for you and your churches, whether you're in a sustaining moment or a rebuilding moment. It's an excellent goal for you in your small group uh, because that's where all the great discipleship takes place, isn't it? In small groups. So, a culture of try, it sweeps you up. It needs no explanation. It's caught, not taught, a lot of the time. Um, so, I want, I got maybe five tips, insanely practical, knock the blender off the table sort of tips for you on, on building a culture of try uh, in your church or small group. Are you ready? These ain't fancy, but they work. Number one, um, cultures are largely defined by what they celebrate. So I encourage you, above all else, to celebrate trying. Celebrate trying. Notice I did not say celebrate succeeding. That's different. Celebrate trying. Trying. So... uh, I may have shared this in my talk a couple of years ago, but at my church, we give trophies at our leaders' banquet every year, and we have three categories for these trophies. We have Blue Water Moment of the Year, which is an adventure story. We have everybody share their stories. We give a trophy for the best story, for the best adventure story. And you know, we've had some good adventure stories. We'd have people thrown in communist prisons. We had a woman get shot on the foreign mission field. She won. It was a gimme. Um, <laughs> We've had all sorts of problems with, anyway, anyway. So adventure stories, needs no explanation. And then we have uh, most awkward ministry moment of the year. Again, needs no explanation. We've all been there. We all understand it. But the most competitive trophy is most spectacular failure of the year. And the reason we give that trophy is because we want to make it clear that what we're celebrating is the attempt. Because all the faith is in the trying, right? All the faith is in the trying. Um, and uh, we do 90-second testimonies during our Sunday services. Sometimes people will stand up and say, oh, I healed somebody in the park this week, and we're like, yeah, way to go. And then somebody will stand up and say, I tried to heal somebody, you know, at, at school in front of the whole class and failed. And we'll go, yeah, you know, uh, because it's a great try story, a great try story. So celebrate trying, especially when it fails. Figure out how to do that. Figure out how to share about that. That's number one. A culture is what it celebrates. Number two, and relatedly, share stories constantly. Uh, if you want to be really Christian-y about it, don't call them stories. Call them testimonies. That's fine. That's fine. That works. We have a saying at Blue Water Mission. We say, we're in it for the stories, And it's uh, very common for me to end a counseling session by saying, all right, now go get me some stories. You know, bring me back some stories. 
Here's why. Because if you have stories to share in your talk story, then you've tried stuff. You need to have a lot of stories. Uh, and so I try to make that very clear to our disciples. And the best way to make that clear culturally is to constantly share stories. You know, I get together in my small group every week, and my first question is, all right, who's got, who's got God stories from the week? What's happening out there? You know, we got so carried away this past week that we never got to the Bible study or anything like that. Just a lot of really great stories. And that's when I know that things are healthy. Some of them are embarrassing. Some of them are failure stories, but some of them are fruitful. Kingdom stories, of course, of course, you know, uh, because uh, if you try unsuccessfully, that's the pathway to trying successfully. So share stories constantly and make that a cultural norm for you. Number three, make sure your leaders are great triers. And I think I'm speaking to a room full of leaders. So make sure that you are a great trier. If you are merely an expert, stop leading. If you are a trier, you should be in charge. You should be the first to try things. You should have as many try stories as anyone uh, in your congregation, in your small group. And if you don't, then you know you're failing at leadership. That's the metric. That's the measure. Never, if you're a church leader, never promote somebody into leadership who's not a trier. Because if somebody is leading who's not a great trier, that person will without exception, stifle trying in others because leadership is the lid, right? Leadership is the model. And you don't want people from below pressuring the leaders to try like the other way around. So make sure your leaders are great triers. And if you are a leader, make sure that you have a lot of great try stories. Uh, that's that. <clears throat> Number three, popularize sayings, because culture is not contained in great teachings. Culture is contained in great proverbs, great, great sayings. And Jesus was great at sayings, wasn't he? He never gave a long sermon. You're thinking, well, you should follow Jesus, Jordan. <laughs> I think you could probably tell the entire gospel with nothing but a list of one-liners from Jesus. Do unto others. You'd have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. These are great one-liners. The world knows these. That's how, that's how great one-liners are. They're just portable teachings. They go anywhere. They soak into the culture. Faith can move mountains. That's been in Broadway songs, for Pete's sake. Uh, pick up your cross daily. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. A man can't serve two masters. It's a great slogans. You could put these on bumper stickers. We have a saying at my church, it's not real until you put it on a T-shirt. Uh, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Right, so much content, so few words. It's great for introverts. <laughs> our church slogan, three letters, try. That's on our t-shirt. And it's a great conversation star. Paul says to Timothy, 
uh, more than once in his epistles. Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying, right? Have you read that in, in, in the Pauline epistles? Here's a trustworthy saying, Christ died for sinners, of which I am the worst. That's a heck of a saying. I think it's comedic. I think you have to do it at the right time, though. Christ came to die for sinners, of which I'm the worst. You know, then you get the impact of it. Like, preach righteousness, but never arrogantly. You know, that's a great, that's a great sermonette. Uh, some sayings from my church that everybody at my church would know. Faith means trying. Faith is spelled T-R-Y. Everybody at my church would know that, would say that. In your purpose lies your power. Wow, that's a good one. That's not a, that's not a mug. It is. Discipleship means follow through. That's a good one. Uh, we're in it for the stories. I already quoted that one. Everybody knows these. Fear is the start of every bad thing. Uh, that's a good one. Life is ministry. That's what you're here for, etc. cetera. Uh, you probably have some sayings of your own, but the point is to repeat them constantly because they become your thesis statement. The kingdom of heaven is at hand was a saying that Jesus repeated all the time, and then it became a cultural pillar. You'll have powerful sayings, pocket-sized teachings, one-liners, and it will define your culture more than any sermon you ever give. You know, so know what you're saying. Relatedly, teach questions. Sayings are wisdom carriers, but questions are conversation starters. Jesus asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. Uh, by my count, he answered two. <laughs> Typically, you know what happened when you ask Jesus a question. He'd respond with a question, right? Because he wanted to converse. Like, he didn't want to just, like, give you an essay. He wanted to get you moving. And so questions were usually a way for him uh, to do that. Uh, in my church, uh, I teach and I drill five discipleship questions. And, and I, I, I stop in the middle of sermons and I'll quiz the whole congregation on these sometimes. Uh, five discipleship questions. One of our sayings, incidentally, is always be discipling whatever conversation that you're in. So you should have some questions at the ready and teach your people to have questions at the ready. Um, so what has God been saying to you recently? That's discipleship question number one. It's great to ask that to non-believers, by the way. That's where all the good questions start. If you can't quite pull that off, say, um, um, what is significant in your life recently? And then you can get to God from there if you want to. What's God been saying to you recently? What are you doing about it? What's challenging about that? Who are you bringing along with you in that journey? How can I help? Everybody knows those questions. And you can have a significant conversation at the drop of a hat, no matter where you are, in any pub, in any bus, in any classroom. Um, my point is that if you teach people to ask Jesus questions, they'll get into Jesus conversations uh, in any park or any Target or any home group. Uh, and questions are culture definers. Uh, workshop things whenever possible, but I'm speaking to a vineyard crowd, so you know all about workshopping things. Never, ever talk about um, something that Jesus did without trying it on the spot, if you possibly can. 
resurrection accepted. <laughs> and finally, model grace. And I'll end here. Um, Because grace, of course, is the thing that makes faith possible. And grace is the thing that makes trying possible. Grace is the thing that takes the fear out of failure and risk. You know what grace is? Grace is having a very clear standard and a lot of generosity in how you apply it. You have to have both, right? Grace isn't just the generosity part, right? It's the clear standard plus the generosity together. So grace is always intention. Grace is the hardest thing for the world to understand. You find it nowhere in the world except the church, pretty much. And I think even veteran Christians fail to understand grace. They're always going too far into one or the other. They're always like too much into rules or too much into generosity, which means light, um, lack, being lax about the standards. You know, like grace is, is complex, it's rich. And grace is the thing that you need to talk about all the time to build a culture of try. You know, you have to have a spirit of generosity and be on point and on mission, on morality all the time. You have to do both. Um, whenever you're given a Bible teaching and something in the teaching bugs you, Dig into it, major on it, talk about it, because that's where you'll find the grace every time. That's where the grace is. It's a little, little key for you. But here's what it means on a practical level in your church or in your small group. Here's what grace is. Here's how you know you're doing grace well in your community. It's when you have a mixture of excellence and not so excellence, and you showcase both of them. The hallmark of grace is unevenness. If in your church what you present is excellent through and through, excellent teaching, excellent music, beautiful people, you know, all of that stuff, very professional, and that's all you present, no grace, no grace. If every prophecy you give is a super accurate home run, no grace. If only the best ministers get to try in front of people, that's not grace. You need to fail sometimes so that everybody knows it's all right. So we do prophetic ministry at pretty much every service that we do at Blue Water, you know, 90% of them anyway. Our prophetic elders will get up and they'll call people out of the trial, usually people that are just visiting that day. And what I teach people is you don't prophesy unless the word can be falsified on the spot. Why? Because I want to know if it is accurate or not. So none of these wimpy, milquetoast prophecies, oh, God just wants to encourage you and you're like, <laughs> Save that for outside. You know. It's like, oh, you lost a job recently. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. And sometimes they whiff. And I love it. Because then I can say, ah, well, see, I told you they weren't perfect. Because what makes prophetic ministry safe 
is not perfection, but authenticity. Yeah? And authenticity is what communicates the grace. Now, a lot of them hit with life-changing accuracy. And a lot of times, the healing does work. I want to show both. That's how you make a church built on grace, and that's how you build a culture of try. Do you understand? It has to be mixed. It has to be. If it's not mixed results, you're not doing it. You're not doing it right. So I'm putting a lot of pressure on you to be uneven. You get it? And that's all I got to say about building a culture of tribe.